This episode is sponsored in part by Bashful Owl. With the holidays right around the corner, Shannon's crushed crystal pieces make the perfect gift for all of the jewelry lovers in your life. Head over to bashfulowl.etsy.com and use code HOLLYWOODLAND at checkout to receive 25% off your entire order. This offer is exclusive for Hollywood Land Unsolved listeners and won't last long. So don't miss out. Head over to B-A-S-H-F-U-L-O-W-L.E-T-S-Y.com today. I've included a link in the show notes and on the website. This offer is only available for a limited time. Being one of the first wildly famous directors in Hollywood comes with a certain level of prestige, and working on such iconic pictures as Huckleberry Finn and Anne of Green Gables makes you a household name. Now add a shocking unsolved murder, and you will forever be cemented in Tinseltown history. This is Hollywood's first murder, the murder of William Desmond Taylor. I'm your host, Ansley, and welcome to Hollywoodland Unsolved. I must warn you that this episode may be frightening to listeners under the age of 13, so listener discretion is advised. Everyone loves a good rags-to-riches story, and for Hollywood bigwig William Desmond Taylor, that's exactly what happened. But his story came to a smashing end when his body was found in his Hollywood home with a gunshot wound in the back. A handsome, young, and rich director who made a swift name for himself in Hollywood went down in history as Hollywood's first murder, and his death would spark a controversy that would be woven into the film industry forever. William Desmond Taylor was born William Cunningham Dean Tanner in 1872 in a small town in Dublin, Ireland. He came from a lower middle class family and his father was a strict military man who he apparently did not get along with. Upon turning 18, Taylor up and left his family home and never returned. Taylor made his way to America in 1890, where he worked a number of odd jobs, such as mining, antique salesman, and eventually ended up as an actor in New York, where he met a young beauty named Ethel May Hamilton. Taylor married Hamilton in 1901, but he abruptly disappeared in 1907, abandoning his wife and new small daughter. According to reports, he was apparently suffering from, quote, mental lapses, and those close to Taylor thought that he had wandered off while suffering from amnesia. But that seems a bit far-fetched to me. A more likely story is that he decided he didn't want to be tied down anymore, so he left. That's not an uncommon story for that time. Taylor spent years on the road and ended up in Hollywood in 1912. Upon his arrival, he started acting in silent films. He appeared in 27 pictures before moving to the other side of the camera. His directing debut was The Awakening in 1914, and he went on to direct a total of 60 pictures before his murder in 1922. He became one of the most sought-after directors in Hollywood and worked with a number of the biggest stars at the time, including Mabel Norman and Mary Pickford of the famous Pickford family. But before we dive into the murder of William Desmond Taylor, I need to tell you about another scandal that happened just before Taylor's death and changed the course of Hollywood forever. The Fatty Arbuckle Scandal. 
Roscoe Arbuncle, known as Fatty Arbuncle due to his enormous size, was a beloved silent film comedian who was known for being a pioneer in comedy at that time and was close friends with Charlie Chaplin. But his alleged involvement in the death of background actress Virginia Rapp would strip him of everything he worked years to build, and Hollywood would take a sharp notice. He was described as having a quality of, quote, playful innocence that audiences just adored. This was until he was accused of murdering Virginia Rapp in his hotel room while on vacation in San Francisco. On the night of her death, Rapp drank heavily, which she wasn't supposed to do. She had a condition that didn't allow her to drink, and the coroner report stated that she died from a ruptured bladder, which was a symptom of her condition. But Rapp's friend, a known scam artist, convinced the media that Arbuckle was to blame for her death, stating that her bladder was ruptured because she was crushed by his massive weight. The media took this and ran with it. And even though Arbuckle was acquitted of all charges, the media's major dramatization of the scandal tainted Arbuckle's name forever. So with the fall of America's beloved comedian, Hollywood was scrambling to keep their image of a town of glamorous untouchables. The studio set out a strict policy to ensure that Hollywood would have time to clean up their image before another scandal broke, but that didn't go as planned. The murder of William Desmond Taylor shattered that to pieces. So let's dive into his murder. William Desmond Taylor was currently on contract with Paramount at the time of his death, and on the night of February 1st, 1922, silent film actress Mabel Norman went over to the bungalow on Alvarado Boulevard where Taylor lived. The duo were known to be close and, according to reports, had ongoing intimate relations. They spent the evening chatting and drinking cocktails until about 7.45 p.m., when Taylor walked Norman to her car, which was parked on Alvarado Boulevard. Her driver was waiting. She blew him a kiss and left. She was the last known person to see him alive. If you look at the map for this episode, you will see that Taylor lived in a compound with other bungalows, and they were all relatively close together. So if someone was shot, wouldn't you think that they would hear it? Or at least the two adjoining neighbors would? According to one report, quote, Taylor went back to his apartment around 8 p.m., and what was thought to be a car backfire was heard by the neighbors. Faith McLean, a neighbor, went to the window and saw what she first believed to be a man in a long coat wearing a muffler, or his collar turned up, and a plaid cap over his face. He looked at her casually and went back inside as if he'd forgotten something. Later, she said that this person had a, quote, effeminate walk and was, quote, funny looking. More than a decade later, during the grand jury testimony, when pressed by the sheriff and asked if she could be certain it was a man that she saw, McLean answered that she could not. Another neighbor, Hazel Gillian, stated that she saw a dark figure after hearing the car backfire as well. So who was this mysterious figure? Well, most people theorize that it was Taylor's murderer. Taylor's body was found around 9.30 in the morning by his valet, Henry Peavy. It stated that Peavy called the studio where Taylor worked before calling the police and proceeded to make a scene in the courtyard. According to reports, a crowd quickly gathered and a man who identified himself as a quote-unquote doctor said that Taylor had died of a stomach hemorrhage. Yet when the police arrived on scene, they identified a gunshot wound in Taylor's back and the quote-unquote doctor was nowhere to be found. 
This is interesting to me for a number of reasons. One is the idea that the, quote, doctor was someone who was associated with the murder and sent to the scene to try to throw off the police and the media as to what the real cause of death actually was. And two, that this, quote, doctor was someone from the studio system who was trying to keep this potential scandal under wraps because they were still dealing with the wake of the Fatty Arbuckle murder trial. This makes sense because with Taylor's murder coming in the wake of the Arbuckle trial, the studio system was scrambling to keep up the perception that Hollywood was this dream-filled tinsel town. Los Angeles started to get a bad rap, and studio bigwigs started to panic. So was this, quote, doctor someone from the studios sent to try to downplay Taylor's death? According to reports before the police arrived on scene, reps from Paramount, the studio where Taylor worked, are said to have gone into Taylor's bungalow and taken all of the letters they could find, with the exception of the ones that Taylor had hidden, as well as all of the bootlegged liquor. So needless to say, the crime scene was contaminated and evidence was probably missing by the time the police arrived on scene. When they finally did arrive on scene, they found that Taylor had $78 in cash in his wallet and was wearing a two-carat diamond ring. Because of this, they ruled out the idea that the murder had been a robbery gone wrong. But what wasn't accounted for was a large sum of money that Taylor had allegedly shown his accountant the day before. So who are the suspects in this murder? The first suspect is the wife Taylor abandoned, Ethel May Hamilton. Did she somehow track him down due to his success in Hollywood and murder him in cold blood for abandoning her and the daughter they shared? It's a possibility, but that seems a bit far-fetched, considering that according to reports, the two apparently made up later in life and that Taylor even had a solid relationship with his daughter. The second, and most convincing suspect, if you ask me, is the 19-year-old actress Mary Miles Mincher. She's a former child star who was deeply in love with 49-year-old Taylor. Minter was apparently known for having, quote, daddy issues, and often developed feelings for her older male superiors. She was also known to be taken advantage by them. According to reports during the investigation, a number of pornographic photos of Taylor and his many young actress lovers were found along with a lingerie belonging to Mary Miles Minter. It was monogrammed with MMM. What was also found was a number of keys that didn't fit into any of the locks at Taylor's house. So did he have a number of young lovers and this was a case of he had it coming? Chicago reference, anyone? According to a report from History Channel's website, quote, after his murder, a love note to Taylor from Minter was found in his home, along with her nightgown in the bedroom. Other damning facts came to light. Minter had once tried to shoot herself with the same type of gun used in Taylor's murder. Furthermore, Shelby, Mary Miles Minter's mother, had previously threatened the life of another director who had made a pass at her daughter. And to top it off, Shelby's alibi witness received suspiciously large sums of money after the murder. But we'll dive into that later. There's also the fact that was mentioned above that Minter's mother owned a gun that's almost a complete match to the profile of the gun that Taylor was shot with. So if the gun did belong to the Minter family and one of them shot Taylor with it, what happened to the gun? According to reports, Mary Miles Minter's grandmother took the gun and threw it in a river, so the police never got their hands on it. 
how convenient. That same account from earlier goes on to state, quote, many years later in Minter's unpublished autobiography, she admitted that she and her mother were at Taylor's bungalow on the night of the killing. Famous director King Vidor told people that Minter had ambiguously admitted that her mother had killed Taylor after finding her daughter in Taylor's home. It's pretty suspicious if you ask me. That same account goes on to state, quote, Ed C. King, a special investigator with the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, stated in an article for True Detective magazine in 1930 that Taylor was troubled by Minter's unyielding infatuation. King interviewed Arthur Hoyt, Taylor's friend, with who he worked at the LA Athletic Club in connection with the case. Quote, Taylor swore Hoyt to secrecy, saying that if he would promise not to breathe it to a living soul, he would tell him something that was causing him a great deal of worry. Mr. Taylor then told Mr. Hoyt that the dearest, sweetest little girl in the world was in love with him and that he was old enough to be her father. This little girl was madly in love with him and had been to his apartment the night before, coming at nearly three o'clock in the morning. She had insisted on remaining and he had insisted on her going home, whereupon the little girl had cried and threatened that if he tried to put her out, she would scream and cause a scene. This, of course, Mr. Taylor wanted to avoid, as he had many friends in the neighborhood. He finally persuaded her to leave, driving her home. Mr. Taylor stated to his friend Hoyt that this little girl had become so infatuated with him that it was really becoming serious. He was also worried that he didn't know what to do about it. She stated that she had not seen Mr. Taylor for a long time, the last time being on the streets of Los Angeles. Mr. Taylor was in his car and she in hers. They merely waved to each other. This statement was not true. We were both able to prove that she had been in his apartment many times and had actually been there at the night of the murder." That shows that Mary Miles Minter not only had an infatuation with her older director, but that she had threatened him a number of times. So was it a crime of passion that led to the death of William Desmond Taylor? Another account states, quote, Charles Hyam, in his book Murder in Hollywood, Solving a Silent Screen Mystery in 2004, theorized that Minter did kill Taylor, but that it was an accident. He suspects that Minter went over to Taylor's bungalow that evening, threatening to kill herself, or him, over her deep feeling for him. Taylor, trying to calm her down, brought her into an embrace, upon which the gun accidentally went off. Hyam backs up this claim, stating that the powder burns on Taylor's body indicate that he was shot at a close range, and based on that, quote, just a little over five feet tall. According to Hyam's theory, that would mean that it was a hug situation gone wrong. According to reports, Minter does not have an alibi, nor can anyone account for her whereabouts at the time of Taylor's murder. So there's some pretty convincing evidence against Minter but that doesn't account for the mysterious man that the neighbors claimed to have seen. There is also apparently no clear evidence that she was actually in Taylor's house that night, and there was never sort of any admission of guilt on her part. But later, blonde hairs were discovered, as well as love letters thought to be from Minter, as well as her monogrammed MMM nightgown. That seems suspicious enough to me. 
Minter's mother, Charlotte Shelby, was also a suspect in the case. According to pretty much every report I could find, Shelby was an overly protective mother of her stunning young daughter. It's said that Shelby herself wanted to be a star, but she lacked the looks and talent, so she lived vicariously through her daughter. Shelby is said to have been the typical stage mother, but to the nth degree, even going as far to threaten men who became entangled with her daughter. One account states, quote, When Minter was still a teenager, she became involved with director James Kirkwood and reportedly became pregnant. Shelby paid for the abortion and is said to have threatened Kirkwood with a 38 caliber revolver, end quote. That just so happens to be the same gun that Taylor was killed with. So does Shelby have an alibi for the murder? As I mentioned earlier, Shelby's alibi witness received large sums of money. According to a report, quote, Shelby's non-family member alibi for the night of the murder was actor Carl Stockdale, who had been alleged in Hyam's book, accepted a lifetime income for saying that he was with Shelby between 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. on the night of the murder. Charlotte Shelby paid Carl Stockdale $200 a month for life. Why? End quote. Sounds pretty suspicious if you ask me. Why would you pay someone on a monthly basis for the duration of their life if you weren't asking for their help in something? What about the accounts that the neighbors gave of the dark figures? Well, some theorize that it was Shelby, dressed in disguise. I know there are a lot of suspects, but bear with me because we've got a few more to go. Another potential suspect would be the accountant who knew that Taylor was packing cash and sent a hitman to break in and steal the money that Taylor had recently withdrawn from his account. That money was never accounted for. Another suspect is Taylor's former houseman. In 1920, Taylor hired Edward Sands, also known as Edward Snyder, as his houseman. It didn't take long for Taylor to learn that Sands was unstable and fired him. After that, Taylor's house was broken into and vandalized by Sands on more than one occasion. He even forged $5,000 in checks and wrecked Taylor's car. Apparently before the murder, Taylor made claims that he was being stalked. He would receive phone calls and then there would be no answer. No one would be on the line and then they would abruptly hang up. One theory is that Sands was blackmailing Taylor. He had worked for him in his home and had known him intimately, after all. Taylor felt incredibly threatened and confided in a number of friends, but no police report was ever filed and no one was ever charged. One account states, quote, it would seem that Sands was the murderer, with the exception of the fact that he signed in to work at a lumberyard in Oakland, California on the day of the murder. The fact that Taylor didn't do more to find Sands indicates that Sands may have actually been blackmailing him. Also, Taylor's bank account were surprisingly low considering his salary at the time of his death. So was Taylor being blackmailed and felt too threatened to let anyone know? Another suspect is the last person to see Taylor alive, his former lover and beloved comedic actress, Mabel Normand. According to reports, Norman was quite mixed up in the drug scene in Hollywood, and Taylor had, on a number of occasions, intercepted and got himself mixed up in Norman's drug connections. So was this an attempt to fight back? 
Taylor had asked for stricter drug laws from the city of Los Angeles. So another theory is that Taylor was killed by a hitman for his involvement in that community. Taylor was involved in the Take Charge movement against drugs because of his love for Mabel and her involvement in that community. That probably put a target on his back with some pretty shady people. He felt so strongly about this cause that he apparently led a commission. This theory fits the idea that the neighbors saw a man in the courtyard on the night of the murder. There is another theory that Taylor was gay and involved with his valet, Henry Peavy. Being homosexual in the 1920s was quite scandalous and something that most people kept under wraps. So it would make the person who found him, Henry Peavy, the murderer. So did Peavy kill him to keep him quiet? Or was Taylor threatening to come out in public and ruin Peavy's reputation? Peavy was the person to find Taylor's body. And then there are the deathbed confessions. As with any murder case, there are handfuls of false confessions made. So sometimes it's hard to distinguish those, years after the murder, if they're true or false. Especially in the case of Margaret Gibson. As was in the case of Roland West admitting to kill Thelma Todd on his deathbed, Gibson did the same thing for the murder of William Desmond Taylor. Gibson was a silent film star that worked with Taylor in her early days of her career in Hollywood. And according to reports, she was a drug addict and not long after Taylor was murdered, she was charged with extortion and blackmail. She was not convicted. She fled the country and didn't return back to the United States until 1949. But in 1964, as she lay dying, she asked to see a priest because she wanted to confess her sins. She admitted to killing William Desmond Taylor and died shortly after. This case is really puzzling because there are so many suspects. But like I said, I do think it was Mary Miles Minter that killed William Desmond Taylor. I think that she was a child star who was used to getting her way, and she had been known for throwing temper tantrums and for wanting to be romantically involved with Taylor. I think that Taylor didn't reciprocate her feelings and was made extremely uncomfortable by them. In either an act of defiance or passion, Minter killed Taylor and instantly regretted it. I think that the man that the neighbors saw was Charlotte Shelby, but she wasn't leaving the murder scene. She was going there to try to see if there was anything she could do to prevent her beautiful starlet daughter from being convicted of murder. And apparently, it worked. There are so many suspects in this case and so many motives as to why. And with this case being cold for almost 100 years, I don't know if it will ever be solved. This case will most likely remain unsolved. But if you want to try your hand at tracking down the killer of one of Hollywood's most iconic directors, as always, maps and addresses are included in the show notes as well as on the website. Happy sleuthing. Next time on Hollywoodland Unsolved, we dive into the mysterious death of Olive Thomas. The young Hollywood starlet died after a night of partying in Paris on a second honeymoon with her husband, Jack Pickford. Yep, you heard that last name right. Shortly after the Pickford family was involved in the murder of William Desmond Taylor, they were swept up in another media frenzy. That was the mysterious death of Olive Thomas. 
I have to do a shout out to Brian Balzarini, who does the graphics for the show. Not only did he do the album cover for the show, he does the customized album covers you see for each episode, as well as all of the graphics on the website and the hand-drawn maps for each episode. He is a total rock star. On top of being a graphic designer extraordinaire, he hosts his own podcast with two totally rad dudes, Tony and Dangles, called The Left Coasters, where they cover all things sports in the Los Angeles area and, of course, the Los Angeles Rams. So check them out. I've included a link to their show in the show notes and on the website. All elements of Hollywoodland Unsolved are produced by me with graphics and maps by Brian Balzarini and music by my amazing father.